I came across uh, a story that I found quite shocking uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, f- I came across it in, in a book, uh, Finishing Strong, called Finishing Strong, uh, by a guy called Stephen Farrer. Uh, and in that book, he describes a particular conference uh, that he heard of, uh, and the organizer was a personal friend of his. It was a Christian conference. It was run in the Midwest in America. Uh, it attracted lots of pastors and student workers and youth workers to this conference. So many, in fact, that actually at the hotel where the conference was held, uh, the whole hotel, over 400 rooms, were filled up by the, the delegates of the conference. And the conference went for a number of days. Uh, and at the very end of the conference, the friend of Mr. Farrer, the organizer of the event, had a conversation with the hotel manager. And the hotel manager joked to the organizer uh, that during the conference, the number of guests who logged into the adult channels on the on the TVs in each of the hotel rooms reached a record high during that conference. Now, I think you and I should be shocked and a little bit horrified by a story like that. Because if you put yourself in the shoes of the manager, what is he thinking now about the message that these delegates claim to profess? We see clearly there's a disconnect between what they claim to believe and how they behaved. Uh, And that disconnect dishonors God and discredits the message that they claim to be promoting. But I think we need to be very careful as we hear a story like that and not point our finger self-righteously at the delegates of that conference because the reality is, of course, that as you and I look back on the year that's just gone, if we're at all self-aware, if we're honest with ourselves, we all must admit that there's a gap. There's a gap for each one of us, the gap between what we claim to believe and how we behave. Uh, That gap for each one of us dishonors the Lord. Uh, That gap for each one of us potentially discredits the message that we share. As we look forward to this new year, one of the things that all of us should be hoping for is that that gap could be closed, that we would be people of real integrity, that what we claim to believe, uh, we would, it would cash out in how we behave. What we say with our lips would be also evident in our lives. Uh, what we profess would be lived out in practice consistently, both in public and in private. And the real message of this letter, the short little letter that that the Apostle Paul wrote to a a colleague, a co-worker, Titus, the message of this letter is that transformation is possible. Transformation is possible. It is possible to close that gap for each and every one of us. Uh, And I think that is an exciting thought at the beginning of the new year that it is potentially, potentially we all could be the people we long to be 
or at least more like the people we long to be. And Paul really spells out how that is possible. A little bit of background first before we dive into the detail. Uh, Paul, uh, who was one of the early followers of Jesus, uh, a very famous uh, church planter, preacher, writer of the New Testament, uh, at some point in his, in his traveling uh, ministry uh, as a missionary, Uh, He lands in Crete uh, with Titus and a bunch of his friends, his colleagues. Uh, They publicly declare the good news about Jesus, that he is God's son, that he died for sinners, that he rose again, uh, that there is hope and forgiveness for all. He declared that message both publicly and shared it privately, and a a whole bunch of people on the island of Crete uh, accepted the message as true and put their trust in Jesus. And a whole bunch, just reading between the lines, it seems that a group of little house churches were planted uh, on the island uh, of Crete. For whatever reason, Paul seems seems to have left Crete, but he left Titus, his partner, uh, mission partner, uh, pastor, uh, who he trusted behind uh, with the job of encouraging, instructing, and organizing these little house churches. Uh, And so this morning, what I want to do, what I want to do is I want to take you to Crete. I want to take you to Crete. It's a nice thought, isn't it? On the middle of the winter, maybe a bit of winter sun, uh, go to the beach, bit of bit of culture, ruins to look at. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not the Crete of the, the travel brochure that I want to take you to this morning. I'm going to take you to the Crete of the first century AD. And that's not quite so wonderful. That's not quite so wonderful. Uh, look, just look at chapter 1, verse 12 uh, and 13. Here is the Crete of the first century. Um, One of Crete's uh, own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and the saying is true. Okay, we're all a bit nervous about cultural stereotypes. Uh, Often they're just used as as, uh, excuses for prejudice. But Paul is saying, look, this, this proverb is generally true for the people that live in Crete. This is an accurate description of their culture. Uh, in Crete, you couldn't trust the newspapers to be saying the truth. On Crete, you couldn't really rely on the politicians to not be corrupt. Uh, on Crete, you couldn't really uh, feel safe going out at night because of all the antisocial behavior, behavior and the binge drinking. There was an obesity crisis, clearly, on Crete. All sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? A bit familiar? Is that not very similar to the culture uh, of our day? Uh, but, so what we see here in Crete is, is not the, the beautiful, wonderful, I- idyllic paradise. Uh, it's a, a culture that is very difficult. A culture where it is going to be very difficult to live as a Christian. Uh, where godliness... It doesn't really look like very productive soil for that. Um, and we see that that is pretty much what Paul is aiming for. And that is the big theme of his letter. The danger when reading some of Paul's letters is we come to that little greeting bit at the beginning. I, Paul, write to you, so-and-so, and I'm saying this and doing that. Uh, and we skip over that to get on to the meat of the letter. But actually, it's really helpful when coming to one of Paul's letters just to spend time just for a moment, just to... Look at the greeting carefully. 
because often it tees up the big theme uh, of the letter, and we see it exactly that way on, in this letter. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, we see what Paul, the big theme that Paul has for Titus in the letter, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. To so know and be captivated by the truth that it changes you to become godly. And Paul is saying that even in the very unproductive looking soil of Crete, that is possible. That is possible. And I think that's, again, very encouraging for us at the beginning of a new year when we might look at our families and our workplace or our lives and think that's very unproductive soil for godliness. But Paul is saying that transformation, transformation really is possible for even people like you and me, for even people like the Cretan Christians. Um, We see this theme. uh, If you stand back and look at the, the letter in total. It's happy. It's a happy coincidence that it's really short and it's there just all for you on two pages. Uh, So you can see hopefully the structure of the letter very clearly. Uh, Each chapter is uh, made up of two halves. It's like each chapter is like a football match, you know, game of two halves. Uh, And it splits uh, around one word, the word for. And so chapter one is all about godliness in the church, godliness in the church. And we'll see in a moment that Paul talks about the truth and the teachers that are needed for godliness in the church. For, for, verse 10, for, and then he continues by saying there's plenty of false teachers out there who are heretics and harmful uh, and homewreckers uh, in uh, the, the church there in Crete. Godliness in the church. Chapter 1, chapter 2 then is all about godliness in the home. Godliness in the home. He challenges Titus to teach and set an example for all the different people that make up a household. Young people, old people, uh, men and women. Uh, he's to, set, to teach and set an example for them all because there's to be godliness in the home, godliness in the home for, verses 11 to 14, Christ died for the purpose of redeeming a people who were eager to do what is good. That's why Christ died, to change us and to make us into those people that were more like him, eager to do what is good. Godliness in the church, chapter 1, godliness in the home, chapter 2, and then thirdly, godliness in in the world. It's not obvious in our little NIV version of the Bible, but verse 3 in the original language begins again with the word for. For. For at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of pleasures and passions, but God has saved us. But God has saved us. Why? He has saved us. Uh, verse 8. Verse 8, just to stress these things that we have been saved so that you who have trusted in God may be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul wants to transform people 
So Paul, through the gospel, preaching the gospel, wants to see people transformed who are eager, keen to do what is good. And that is profitable for everybody, for all of society, uh, when Christians live the way that they should, consistent, kind, uh, loving lives. So you see the, the, the theme of this letter? Transformation. Truth that leads to godliness in the church, in the home, uh, and in the world. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at each one of those uh, in turn. And so we dive into chapter one this morning, uh, where we're going to look at what is necessary, what are the ingredients for godliness uh, in the church, godliness uh, in the church. And there are two things, two things. If we were to see a church that is made up of godly people, two things are necessary. Verses 1 to 4, we need the truth, the truth that will lead to godliness. And then secondly, verses 5 through to verse uh, 11, we need the teachers uh, that will lead us to godliness. So first then, the truth that leads to godliness, verses 1 to 4. If you meet someone for the first time, uh, there's a set of questions. It's sort of social etiquette. There's a set of questions that you ask someone when you meet them for the first time. And one is, uh, that's very near the top of the list, is what do you do? What do you do? Uh, I've I've personally found that a really awkward question. It's a bit of a conversation killer for me. You know, so I meet someone for the first time. I'm a church pastor. Oh, oh, right. And then the conversation goes quickly to the news, sport, or the weather. Just anything. Just let's not talk about that. So in order to be a bit more awkward and maybe even intriguing, I've tried to come up with alternative answers to that question. Um, So uh, the best three that I've come up with, the ones that have elicited a response, are number one, I'm a life coach. Okay? People go, what's that? Let me tell you what that's all about. Um, Or second, uh, I'm in advertising. I'm in advertising. I've only one major client. Okay, so that's one, another answer that I gave. Or second, for all you Harry Potter fans out there, I have said on one occasion, uh, I'm a defense against the dark arts teacher. That's that's what I do. Uh, But if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what, what is it he does? What does he do? It's, it's there in uh, verse 1 and 2. It's there in verse 1 to 2. Paul, he's a servant of God, an apostle, a spokesman, uh, a commissioned spokesman of the Lord Jesus, working for two things. One, for the faith of God's elect. He's working for conversion. He's working for people putting their trust in Jesus. First thing he works for. And the second, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. He's working for transformation. That's two aims Paul has in mind in all his work, in all his preaching and teaching and traveling and church planting. He's aiming for those two things. I aim that people put their trust in Jesus and I am working and laboring that people are changed by the truth. That's the two things then Paul uh, is working for. And if those are, if Paul is, imagine Paul for just a second in your mind's eye building a wall with these two bricks of conversion and transformation, they are resting on a bottom brick. Okay, those two things are resting on a bottom brick. Uh, I like the way uh, this version of the NIV translates it. Um, verse 2 resting on the hope 
of eternal life. You see, there's one essential tool that Paul needs uh, to achieve both conversion and transformation, and that is the hope of eternal life. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that, quite simply, as he goes on to explain, is that Paul is sharing a message that it's possible for sinful men and women to live with God forever in the new creation. Uh, It's a message that was promised uh, before the beginning of time. Who did God promise it to before the beginning of time? Well, clearly he promised it to himself because there was nobody else there. Uh, God made a promise before the beginning of time and at just the the appointed time, the precise moment uh, when all was prepared, he revealed uh, and put into action that wonderful promise by the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus, who came to to live a perfect life, to die a death, uh, taking the punishment for sinners, to rise again, uh, giving hope uh, for the future for all who put their trust in him. And so in one sense, this little phrase, the hope of eternal life, is what we would call the gospel in a nutshell. It is the good news about Jesus that Paul is sharing, and it is the good news about Jesus that will bring conversion, and it's the good news about Jesus that will bring transformation. And actually, more, those things are more shocking. That, that statement is more shocking than you might think. Uh, first, the, without the truth uh, of the gospel, we won't see conversion. Without the truth of the gospel, we won't see conversion. Now, when you talk to people today and they talk about faith, they usually mean it in a couple of ways. Number one, if people talk about faith, they often mean religion. What faith are you? Uh, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Roman Catholic, I'm a Protestant evangelical. Uh, Faith is often used in that way, but faith is sometimes used in in the sense of uh, ability you have. Oh, I wish I had your faith. As if faith was like intelligence or musical gifting. Oh, I don't have it, but you've got it. And it's great that you have it, and I would quite like it, but it's impossible for me. But the Bible never means, and the New Testament in particular, never uses the word faith in either of those ways. In the New Testament, faith is not an ability you have. It is an activity you do. It's an activity you do. And so I think maybe the English word faith is a little bit unhelpful because it has no verb. You're not faithing. Um, but it really is a verb in the New Testament. It means to believe, to trust, to depend on, to rely on. And so in the New Testament, Christian faith is impossible without hearing the promise of the Christian gospel. Christian faith is impossible without hearing the Christian gospel. Because that's what Christian faith is all about. The good news is, what is the good news? The good news is that God made the world. We wrecked it. And we wrecked our own lives by our selfishness and pride. But wonderfully, in God's amazing kindness, he came in the person of his son to be a savior for all by dying on the cross. And by rising again, he became the Lord of all. And so the promise is you can have forgiveness membership in God's family and a fantastic future if you come to Jesus 
and ask him to be your savior and submit to him as your Lord. If you trust the promise, that's faith in the New Testament. And so the truth of the gospel, without sharing the truth of the gospel, it is impossible to see converts according to the New Testament. And that is why Andy was standing here five minutes ago. Because it, we, are, we are so committed to that idea that the, gospel, the good news about Jesus has to be held up and held out. Otherwise, people will not, never come to faith. That is the motivation behind us running Alpha. And we long that that is the motivation behind each and every one of us praying for, looking for conversations and opportunities to talk about our faith. I came across this quote this morning. This made it right into the, into the script. Um, in uh, the Telegraph, uh, from a surprising author, Tim Stanley, he wrote this, Christians have become their own worst enemy, killing their faith with silence. So what does he recommend? Advertise, speak up, tell people about your beliefs. At the center of the faith is the truth that Jesus died and rose from, the de- and rose from death to herald a new era. The power of the good news is so great that it cannot fail to win converts. Time to share it. I got brilliant. I got brilliant. And so the challenge for each and every one of us, especially as we have an alpha coming up, an alpha course, is will you share your faith? Will you be bold enough to invite someone along? Because without doing that, no one will come to faith. The truth we need, um, without the truth of the gospel, we won't see converts. But here's another point. Without the truth of the gospel, we will not see transformation. We won't see transformation. And I think this cuts across our uh, pre, predisposed settings. Because I think we often practically believe that if we're going to see change, we need to bang on about the rules all the time. We need to tell people, do this, don't do that, uh, and people will listen and be changed. But from the, the teaching of the Bible and from our experience, we all know that that is just not true. That's just not true. If you just bang on about the rules and tell people what they should and shouldn't do, you will, yes, succeed in making people feel challenged and guilty, but you will not see change. You will not see change. And so if we want to see our children changed, we want to see our young people changed, if we want to see ourselves changed, those who are older changed, what do we need to talk about a lot? We need to talk about the amazing kindness of God. That's what we need to talk about. Yes, you need to know what pleases him. Yes, you need to know what disobedience looks like and what obedience looks like. Yes, absolutely. But what takes top billing is the kindness and the mercy of God. God's wonderful kindness, graciousness, and mercy. And it's only as we talk about those things, let's put up the next quote, Lynn. It's only as we talk about those things, next one, uh, that we will see change. We need to teach the truth about how God has been so wonderfully kind, gracious, and merciful to us. Uh, in Christ Jesus, so that we, we are motivated and inspired to do what is good. 
You see, the gospel is so powerful that it can see people converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the gospel is so powerful that it can inspire and change us. How will you learn to forgive someone who doesn't, in your mind, deserve to be forgiven? By remembering God forgave you when you didn't deserve to be forgiven. How will you be patient and long-suffering with someone who just annoys you all the time? By remembering God is patient and long-suffering with you when you disobey him and rebel against him all the time. You get the idea? How will you become a better husband, a better father, a better friend? By reflecting and being captivated by the God who is the supreme husband, father, friend. You get the idea? It is only by rehearsing the gospel that we will be inspired to be changed. What do we need if we're to see change in our lives and in our church? We need the truth that leads to godliness. But there's a second ingredient we need uh, in this chapter, and that is the teachers we need for godliness. The teachers we need for godliness. Paul seems to see uh, the need for teachers to be a top priority uh, for Titus to um, institute uh, in these little house churches. So we see that right from the very beginning. Verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders or leaders in every town as I directed you. Paul is suggesting that uh, that leaders who teach the truth are appointed then in every every one of these little house churches. How do you recognize qualified teachers then? What do they look like? Well, Paul has no mention about the theological institution that they've attended or the degree that they've got. doesn't get a mention. He doesn't mention their age. He doesn't mention how successful they've been in their career. None of those things get a look in. None of those things get a mention. How do you know a qualified teacher? A qualified teacher is someone who's so captivated by the truth that they themselves are changed. That's how you know a qualified teacher. They're so captivated by the truth that they themselves have already been changed by it. Um, And and in a sense, then, Paul goes through these um, list of qualifications for a a teacher, a leader in a local church setting. And in one sense, the list is remarkable in its unremarkableness, if that's a word. Indulge me for a moment if it's not. Okay, it's remarkable in its unremarkableness. There is only one, with one exception, there is nothing on this list that is not required of every Christian everywhere, somewhere else in the New Testament. So you can't come to this list and go, ah, well, I don't really want to be a leader in the church, so none of this applies to me. It's okay for me to get steaming drunk on a Saturday night. It's okay for me to completely fly off the handle and get angry way out of proportion uh, with my spouse or friend or whatever. It's okay for me to flirt at work. It doesn't really matter. No, no, no. Paul is saying that leaders are those Christians, model Christians, who themselves have been transformed by the gospel, who serve as an example for the rest of us. And so in one sense, this is relevant for every single one of us. And Paul sums up the qualification for a a leader in a local church uh, with one word, and it's this word, blameless, blameless. 
And thankfully, it doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. Otherwise, I'd have to be writing my resignation this week. Uh, It doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, but it means someone who has been, who's accepted the forgiveness of God, someone who is striving to live in a way that pleases God, uh, someone who has integrity and honesty uh, and is repentant where those things have fallen short. Someone who is not a hypocrite. That's really what Paul is getting at. And there are three areas where Paul looks, encourages Titus to look for blamelessness. Uh, first, in the home, blameless in the home. Verse 6, literally, the elder is to be a one-woman man. Now, Paul is not saying that every elder must be married and single people are ruled out. Not at all, not at all. Otherwise, he wouldn't qualify as an elder. That seems a bit absurd. No, what he's saying is for any Christian leader, whether married or not, they must be pursuing sexual purity. And where they are married, the way they treat their wife, the way they love and they care for their spouse is a brilliant barometer for how they will love and care for the bride of Christ. With self-sacrifice, with hard work, with care and compassion. Second aspect of blamelessness in the home is that his children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. This has caused a bit of confusion, I think, um, that, well, the word here literally to believe is the word faithful. And everyone has to make a call of who they're being faithful to. So the NIV, for example, assumes that Paul is talking about being faithful to God. So they're Christians. Um, But equally, it could be the idea that they are faithful to their parents. Uh, And I think that fits better with the phrase that comes after, which concentrates on external behavior. And so the point Paul seems to be saying is that if you look at a, a leader and his kids are running riot and they have absolutely no respect for him, uh, and they have, um, he's not been able to maintain good relationships with them at all, then that actually is a, a very good barometer into how he will look after the family of God, the church. He is disqualified. He used to be someone who is a, a father who has um, spent, invested the time, uh, in, uh, had clear boundaries and structure, Um, so that his children grew up to respect him uh, and to flourish under his leadership. Christian leaders then are to be blameless in their homes. Second, Christian leaders are to be blameless in their character, verses 7 and 8. Paul refers to five things, five temptations, pride, temper, drink, power, and money, Uh, that are particular temptations for any leader. Um, Pride. They're not to be so filled, inflated with self-importance that they can't take any criticism, that they can't take any advice. Someone's like that, they're disqualified. Uh, They're to be self-controlled. Self-controlled in terms of their temper, self-controlled in terms of their consumption of alcohol. They're not to be someone who's violent, Of course not physically violent, 
but I, I think the, the implication here is neither should they be verbally violent, emotionally abusive in any way. But godliness uh, in, the, in the New Testament is never just the absence of bad things. It's actually positive. And so what, are, what does godliness look like? Well, it looks like being hospitable, opening your home to others. Uh, I love the little definition of hospitality. It's the idea of making people feel at home when you wish they were at home. Uh, I think that's pretty accurate often. Uh, but there are to be those who are self-controlled, upright, holy, a lover of what is good, a lover of what is good. Now, for those of us in leadership in this church, <laughs> we feel, I think I speak on behalf of, of, of Jeremy and David and Chris and Brian uh, and myself to say we feel exposed by a list like that. Um, so we would ask for your prayers. Pray that the truth would so captivate our minds and our hearts that we would be those men who are transforming more and more to become like this uh, and that we are honest uh, in our repentance where we get it wrong, which we will. We're to be, church leaders are to be blameless in their homes, blameless in their character, and lastly, blameless in their teaching, blameless in their teaching, verse 9. Um, there's a bit of a sword and shield aspect to their teaching. They're to teach the truth, holding firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. Uh, all of us, uh, are in a race uh, where the baton has been passed on to us. I, I, I love the fact that my job is not to make up new stuff and inspire you. Uh, my job is to take the, the, the deposit of the gospel, uh, the New Testament record, and to unpack it for you. Uh, I'm just to take what I've been given and to teach it f- as faithfully as I can. Um, that is the challenge for, for every Christian leader. And the danger for us dropping that is enormous, of course. We could get it wrong and corrupt it along the way. And so how do we know we've got the real thing, the real McCoy? Well, we listen to the, the New Testament, which is the record of the eyewitnesses, which was given to the apostles, which came from Jesus. We can know accurately what we should teach because it's been accurately, faithfully recorded and reliably transmitted down the centuries to us in the New Testament. But of course, uh, there is, so positively, we teach the gospel. In many ways, that's teach the truth. That's the sword. But we also got to protect the gospel from error. Um, and that requires courage, that is difficult because often it's not just countering ideas. Often that involves challenging people. Uh, and that will make us unpopular and that will be difficult. Uh, but that is the task that we have to do. Um, for, and we don't have time to go into the details. You'll be glad to know in some ways. Uh, we don't have time to go into uh, the, the challenges of verses uh, 10 to 16. The reason that teachers are needed to teach the truth, who themselves have been transformed by the truth, is that verses 10 to 16, there's loads of false teachers out there. Loads of them. How do you know a false teacher? Well, there's three things in many ways. One, they're heretics. 
They're homewreckers and they're hypocrites. They're heretics. Uh, they do not like being told what they should believe. Uh, they don't like being told how they should behave. They're just described as being deceivers, those who are happy to talk about circumcision and the law and the finer points of the Bible and making this a big thing and that a small thing, and yet during the week to behave in corrupt, deceitful, dishonest, immoral ways. The truth has not changed them. They're homewreckers as people listen to and follow their example, whole households have been led astray. You see, the stakes are really high. And lastly, they're hypocrites. Say one thing, do another. Hold people to standards that they themselves don't follow. The positive message, however, of chapter one, which is the positive message of this book, is that while there's a danger, we all go down that track, the track following in the, in the footsteps of the false teachers, becoming hypocrites and heretics. Wonderfully, there is the possibility by listening to the truth and those who teach the truth and have been trans and are being transformed by the truth is that we would be changed ourselves by the truth. That that gap we, we began with would be closed, that we would become people of honesty and integrity and holiness. And I think that's a wonderful aspiration at the beginning of a new year. It's my aspiration and it's our aspiration as a leaders team for us as a church that we would become a church that is godly, godly, eager to do what is good. Come back over these next two weeks and you'll find out what that goodness looks like in practice. But I think that's a good place for us to stop.